Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Thursday, February 15th starts now. On today's show, Ben is fired up to talk Chicago politics. And who better to join him for that discussion than data, government, and policy expert, Denali Dasgupta. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. If you want to know what to do, where to go, what to eat, what to drink, what's happening in music in the city, arts, politics, then head to chicagoreader.com. It's all there for you. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to chicagoreader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V as in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Shot Spotter Gate Thursday, and here's why. Man, that's tough for me to say, ladies and gentlemen. I'm just going to be honest with you. You know, I'm very honest with my dyslexia, my battles, my lifelong affliction with this condition. So Shot Spotter, which is rage. The media has picked it up. Everyone's weighing in with their opinion. I got to weigh in, too. But, you know, unlike the rest of the media, I have some issues with speaking and so you know i'm just gonna be honest with you ladies and gentlemen i have been calling it shot shitter all right and i I admit i've been doing that it's not good (laughs) so i'm just getting it out of the way here before i do it on the show uh make that mistake with the great denali uh dasgupta who's my distinguished guest today and she's got a lot to say about this but before I uh, bring on Denali and get her thoughts on this and all the other pressing issues today, including political news from her home state of New York, where moderate Democrats were victorious in George Santos district, we'll hear what she has to say about that. And before we bring her on to talk about how uh, immigrants actually help the economy. Uh, so why do we call it a crisis when they show up here? We'll get her thoughts on that. But before we get to that, I just got to say something that's on my mind. Uh, and this is something I've known since I moved to Chicago in 1981. But by and large, <laughs> mainstream Chicago, the people who control the media, by, you know, the, the bosses, hate the left. And yeah, I've been dealing with this my whole life as a journalist in the city of Chicago. That's another hard one to say, by the way. Say city of Chicago 10 times and find out how many times you say shitty of Chicago. Anyway. They hate the left. And this is really on display right now because of the shot spotter issue. So shot spotter is a device that police use uh, to um, track down potential crime. So if there's a shooting, the way it's supposed to work, it triggers a a response uh, and police can immediately send uh, police officers to the spot where the shooting occurred. 
it hasn't worked nearly as well as its creators would like you to believe it's worked. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of evidence about this. There's a lot of debate on this. Uh, and it could be argued persuasively. And I'm doing this as mainstream as I can. It could be argued persuasively. I'm auditioning for Channel 11 right now. It, there are those who say that ShotSpotter is not living up to its expectations with us on the show are three people who can't stand each other and they're probably gonna really everything they can to avoid sticking each other with a pencil anyway sorry i didn't get one of that tangent about channel 11 um but uh, so anyway uh, there's plenty of evidence to suggest it doesn't work as well as it should uh and uh, during the campaign uh, mayor brandon johnson then candidate johnson promised to get rid of it because it was just like more money spent on police and if it's not working, why just spend the money? In fact, just hire more police officers. They have to live in the city of Chicago. They have to pump property taxes into the city coffers. It's much more beneficial to get rid of shot spotter and just hire more police. And he finally came up with this cockamamie, it's classic Brandon Johnson, uh, where he's going to keep it for a little while, then he's not going to renew it. And immediately, the mainstreams uh, hit the headlines. Suddenly, they fell in love with shot spotter. They're like, Mayor bows to his base. <laughs> Gets rid of shot spotter. And th the only reason they're defending shot spotter is because they hate the people who oppose it. That is so classic Chicago. That is, that's the logic of Chicago. That's why we're in the predicament we are right now. Well, I hate you, so I'll be against everything you stand for. And I won't even, I won't even give you this much iota of credit for having a good idea. Frankly, it's the first time that I've ever heard uh, in the city of Chicago, people refer to the mayor's base. Follow me on this, Denali. Uh, you lived through Mayor Rahm. You lived through Mayor Daley. I can't recall a mainstream journalist in the city of Chicago ever saying that Mayor Rahm or Mayor Daley is bowing to his base. The presumption of mainstream Chicago was that the entire city was the base of these mayors because the entire they were the mayors and they were revered and beloved by the peasants of Chicago who were just so happy that when the sun rose in the morning, it rose on Mayor Daley and Mayor Rahm. The concept, the notion that they would have a base, that there was a select group of Chicagoans who liked them more than others was unfathomable to mainstream Chicago because they detested the people who didn't like Daley and Rahm. So it's like they were alien creatures that you can put in a corner or put into an attic so you could do a podcast. That's where they belong, up in an attic, overlooking an alley. That's, that's where they belong. That's alien little beings, lefties in the city of Chicago. He's bowing to his base. And I could just see all these commuters. Well, nobody reads a newspaper on a train anymore. What an outdated metaphor. But I could see them on their little phones going, oh, my God, the left. It reminded me when um, Dr. Awadi left. Remember Dr. Y, there's a name people in Chicago have forgotten. And mainstream Chicago, when, when Brandon Johnson finally got around the fire here, which was like, I don't know how many months late on that one, uh, mainstream Chicago was aghast. How dare he fire Dr. Awadi? 
She was like against every public health initiative that Brandon Johnson supposedly believed in. He had, the only issue is why didn't he fire her sooner? Like day one. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm thinking. Um, here's a challenge for Denali and all you listeners out there. When Mayor Daly sold the parking meters for a fraction of their worth, when he sold the parking meters for one billion dollars even though they're worth $10 billion, which is a mistake that Brandon Johnson has come nowhere near, nowhere near approaching. And yet, oh, he's chaotic. He can't run things. Oh, I wish Daly were back in charge. That's the lament of mainstreamers. When Daly sold a parking meters for $1 million, uh, even though they're worth 10, uh, excuse me, $1 billion, even though they're worth $10 billion, did anybody in the mainstream media saying he was bowing to his base? When Mayor Rahm closed 50 schools, one of the cruelest, and the health clinic, mental health clinics, one of two of the cruelest things he could have done, and when it went off skiing, by the way, uh, when the announcement of the schools closures were made, didn't want to be anywhere around. Did anyone say Rahm was bowing to his base? No, it was depicted as like wise men making tough decisions because it's in the interest of the entire city of Chicago. But when Brandon Johnson comes up with a cockamamie solution to try to figure out how to get rid of shot spotter and keep it around long enough to appease the uh, the chieftains in the Democratic Party who are coming here in August, please go to Atlanta. Please go to Atlanta. Don't come to Chicago. There's like, he's bowing to his base. Be scared, Chicago. Be very scared. It's interesting when it took a lefty to come uh, into the mayor's office before we realized that a mayor has a base. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring Denali on. Former aldermanic candidate in the 39th Ward, that's how we met. And I quickly realized uh, that the voters in the 39th Ward, heck of a job, voters, uh, on that one. <laughs> uh, probably not as bad as Mayor Rahm's re-election in 215, but uh, sort of in that direction. Welcome back, Denali. Hey, Ben. So one thing I can let you know is that ShotSpotter's name is now Sound Thinking. So if that's easier to say, or you can manage to say it without vomiting, oh, uh, that might make it a little easier for you. Sound Thinking. Wow, man. That's so wild. I did not know that. Why? Just, are you the first person to know that? Because the mainstream. Are no, no. It's, um, what's the name of the company? But we oh, I continue see. to call it ShotSpotter. And, and that is actually helpful for the Cancel ShotSpotter campaign. It helps people focus on the device, which is one part of it. Um, but how the device interacts with the larger sort of police intelligence and allocation of resources is also part of the campaign. So full disclosure, I campaigned on stopping ShotSpotter. I can say it. Uh, I you know, was surprised, but but did it anyway to receive um, uh, an email from the campaign a little while ago saying like, we need to write a letter to Mayor Johnson to tell him to cancel this thing. And I said, like, I thought we were on the same team. I thought we were going to do this. Um, I knocked doors in the 39th Ward where, you know, a lot of cops live, a lot of people who are, are very concerned about criminal justice and have different views about public safety than I do. And I said, this is $9 million. And people said, whoa, that's a lot of money. And I said, yeah. Uh, and we had some great conversations about public safety on the doors, but I just think that the way that the story is running in the media right now is one about crime and public safety, and it's not one, I thought it was great you brought up parking meters, about how the government spends its money. I don't think they get $9 million worth of anything out of this. And 
I think that there's a lot of ways that putting technology and policing and the way that we're structuring our police department are not getting us what we want or need. So you could make the sell. But this has been this issue where I think folks really love to fight about it. And as you were talking about sort of like, how did we get into this idea of the mayor has a base and, you know, this is a, a, a crazy lefty thing to do. And it's actually a pretty sensible thing to do is that I kind of think that a lot of my fellow crazy lefties love the idea of, of this underdog fight. And we love the idea of, um, you know, organizing campaigns, even when we are pressuring our own guy who promised us he would do this. I was pretty mad about that. Yeah, this is, uh, by the way, you're heading into McDumkey uh, territory. My dear friend McDumkey and I were talking about this. I pretty much called everyone to know to get their thoughts on shot spotter. Uh, and he basically said, uh, he said in different words, sort of what you're saying, that's become a proxy fight for things beyond shot spotter. Uh, and it's become, uh, well, it, there's valid criticisms of shot spotter to be made. Uh, but uh, the defense of it and the importance of getting rid of it have been heightened. Uh, and so it's very important for people who, uh, as you said, supported Mayor Johnson, that he, that he keep that promise and get rid of it. And, but I do not understand the other side. So help me here. Before we get into the whole issue of the, the mayor's base as an alien uh, creature, as a, that's how they're treated, let's get into the issue <laughs> Shots, but you spend a lot of time thinking about how government can work more efficiently. So, why are people so um, loyal to the notion of shots spotter? Why, why are uh, right wing aldermen making this a crusade? Uh, why is why is Brandon Johnson himself feel compelled to keep it around um, beyond the Democratic convention? So, this is a, a public a public safety story that probably started in the 1970s when the federal government started giving more money to local police departments. And police departments started to militarize and they professionalized in different kinds of ways. And there became like special tactical teams and this team and that team. And they just started consuming more money and more resources. And politicians found that it was very expedient to say, we're going to give you another public safety thing. Whether or not it works, ShotSpotter has vibes. Right. And people like the idea that it's smart technology, that it's somehow efficient, that it's somehow intelligent, that it extends the reach of the police. Right. These are all the selling points that the corporation who makes this thing put out there. And I spend a lot of time really close to numbers. Um, and the big numbers that stand out to me are one, the nine million dollars that we spend on it. And two, just the, the lack of effectiveness. I mean, the state's attorney said it's not particularly effective. But the other thing that's that's part of the public safety debate that's really important is um, the way that ShotSpotter provides, quote unquote, intelligence to the police is it tells them that there is sort of a, a high intensity or sort of combat style situation that they're coming into. Now, that layered on top of the increasing like militarization of the police and, and our general forgetfulness that the police are here to you know, theoretically protect us. Right. They're not an army that's fighting an enemy. They're. You know, we're the civilians are coming. They're, they're coming to to help us and also monitor us and do whatever. Um, police roll into situations really amped up, and the harm that can be done from misreading a potential situation is really, really significant, right? And so it's not quite like a false positive, right? People want to say, "Oh, the police are running after fireworks or whatever." The police are coming into situations that could potentially be solved by de-escalation and making them incredibly dangerous for civilians, for bystanders, for police. And that is really bad. 
So even when the thing worked, if it worked great, if it was worth every penny, it adds this component of risk to our residential communities that like we don't want or need. And when you said it was nine million, just to be clear, it's nine million a year, correct? Um, that I would have to look up, but that was the number that I like to toss around. It's expensive. Yeah. And it's expensive because it's like, you know, like the parking meters, it's this idea that, you know, we are selling things off to private corporations and like to tech bros who we know, right? Uber just started making money this year. I don't know why we, we talked about this with Paul Vallis, but like somehow in the backs of our brains, there are these people that we think are good with money and good with business. And a lot of them really suck at it. Um, but this is a private corporation, like many private corporations that loves to sell things to government and like kind of rip off the taxpayer. Yeah. Oh my God. That last uh, point you made is one of my, uh, constant themes it's such an irritant uh, the notion that um daily and rom were better uh with with the finances than Lori lightfoot and brandon johnson i i just think it's part of the brainwashing of america which we'll get into with the immigrants total brainwashed uh, on that on that issue but uh th this is very prevalent and you, you can read it in the um in the way uh, Mayor Johnson and Lori Lightfoot, to a certain degree, were, were treated uh, and their judgment was questioned. The city missteps under Daly and Rahm on the financial end of things, uh, uh, siphoning off property taxes and the tips so that you end up having to borrow more uh, to make to pay your basic bills. So you're borrowing financial fees costs. Denali, that went on for about 20 odd years. And I don't recall anybody uh, making an issue of that because I think that the base that was fed is never mentioned is like corporate America. I mean, you know, Daly and Rob did a really smart thing, which is that they fed, they, they put a lot of money into having a large government public sector workforce, and they siphoned off a ton of money and gave it to corporate guys. Now, under, you know, starting under Rom and then under Lightfoot and Johnson, one thing that Johnson had promised to, to reverse is like, even the assets of the public sector supposedly has, right? You know, our shelter system, we'll talk about that when we talk about migration, but like homeless shelters in Chicago, the city doesn't actually really run them. They have delegate agencies that run them. Um, mental health clinics, right? Part of the fight to bring those back to the public sector is to say that, that through a lot of these contracts, the city pays less, gets less. Your organizations who provide those services have to go back to your, your folks in mainstream Chicago to fundraise through philanthropy to make all of this work. And we have to systematically underprovide services. But I think one of the things that's really challenging sometimes with the city, but particularly with social services, is I keep finding like no one seems to work here anymore. And and I think that there is like a capacity and a hiring, like an HR crisis under the Johnson administration that really does come up in a lot of different situations. What do you mean by that? Just uh, go into a little more detail with that last point. Yeah, I mean, I think that they were slow to hire and that there are still a lot of, um, you know, slow to fire, slow to hire. Um, but, you know, the public sector workforce needs to be bigger. There are a lot of ways that a lot of people who are, are in there trying to do good work um, are not appropriately staffed. Yeah. And like, I don't want to give people all the, you know, I, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I like to try to be neutral, but I will also say that, um, you know, this is the job of government. So you want to run for mayor, you got to run a city, which means you have to have people there to run a city. And I, I think I mentioned this to you. One of the biggest sort of disappointments for me has been all the unspent federal COVID money. 
Um, we can't get dollars out the door because we don't have people there to roll programs out to do stuff. I mean, that is a big difference from our older sort of like big government Democrats versus our newer uh, like public private partnership Democrats. So when you say things like that and in regards to the Johnson administration, do you get pushback uh, from people who supported you uh, and Brandon Johnson in 2023 saying don't criticize the mayor, don't go public? Uh, with criticism of him, we all have to be aboard the same ship and support him no matter what, whatever he does. I think, yeah, I think that's that's pretty rough. Um, and I think some of it is because, right, like this is this was a long shot and he is embattled in other ways. But I also think that when you love someone uh, and, and I love you, Mayor Johnson, right, you know, we we, we were fighting the same fights together. Um you got to tell them, you got to tell them this isn't working. And I think a lot of folks who who worked on my campaign, a lot of folks that I came up with, there's a ton of cognitive dissonance because we feel like we can't say the things. So we say them quietly, or some of us don't say them, or some people say them and everyone gasps, but that's (laughs) politics, right? You know, one of the things about trying to run a coalition versus a machine is that coalitions are these beautiful moments where everyone comes together because we believe in something, but we are all little disparate groups of people doing our own thing. And the power of a coalition is that so many different people believe in one thing. And when you want to make everyone walk in lockstep and not critique and say, okay, we're doing this initiative, we're doing that initiative, shot spotter, uh, bring Chicago home. These things belong to the mayor, not to the organizers who brought them into place, not to the communities who need the money spent better. Uh, this is always a referendum on the mayor. Uh, the folks who, who supported the mayor, right, you know, our, our lefty groups, we love that. And, you know, the people who want to say Mayor Johnson has a base and he has to appease it, they love it too. But that fight, that frame doesn't serve either of us. And it certainly doesn't serve the people in Chicago who are just tired of these things being political and trying to follow the politics and who hates whom versus is this going to make my life better? Well, so the unstated uh, comment uh, behind uh, a statement that Mayor Johnson is doing this to uh, appease his base is that what Mayor Johnson is doing is not worth being done. Uh, and so effectively, they're saying a select group, perhaps like a minority, a special interest, that's another phrase that gets used a lot, uh, has seized control of the mayor. And even though he probably knows that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing, he feels compelled to do it anyway to um, satisfy that base, that select group, that special interest. Uh, and so that's why I always point out like, well, what was the base, the special interest that compelled Mayor Daly to sell parking meters that were worth a billion, excuse me, always get this reversed, 10 billion for 1 billion. And I don't. But so in my circles, people are hearing the opposite where they're saying like, you know, Mayor Johnson was our guy and he came up and made all these promises and we got all these concrete promises. You know, there was this thing that was like, we are all going to the fifth floor. Um, And you know, things are going the way they are. There's a lot of like, well, who is he being influenced by? Maybe if more movement people were inside at the mayor's office, things would be different. Maybe whatever. Um, you know, uh, we we give a lot of, you know, Jason Lee lives rent free in a lot of our heads. Um, <laughs> Jason Lee. I mean, he's Harvard man and what, what Gen Z would call Nepo baby Jason Lee. 
um, lives rent-free in our heads. But, you know, I think the big picture is governing a city is really hard. You have to do it for everybody. But when you campaign on a promise, you should have thought about how to execute and implement that promise. And I think that some of the some of the shifting back and forth, the idea of, yeah, we'll cancel it, but not after, not until after the DNC, is tacit support saying this thing might be a good idea. And Ooh. I don't love that, right? So so it's 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 interesting because I, I could not think of a way to bring more people together by making than, than by making them all this unhappy. All right. So um you mentioned Jason Lee, let's go there. Uh, Jason, <laughs> uh one of the chief advisors uh to Mayor Johnson. Uh, he was a political strategist before uh, he joined. Well, he was a political strategist when he joined the, the Johnson campaign as well. And he used to come on the show all the time, talk politics. Uh, and one thing I noticed about him, one thing I enjoyed about him as a guest was that he was constantly trying to figure out. You could see I could watch his brain working. Uh, he was constantly trying to figure out how can he take this lefty ideal and sell it to mainstream America. And uh, and I'm watching him. I watched him do that before. He was a powerful person in the city of Chicago, was quoted in the in the Sun-Times Tribune, et cetera. And I'm watching him do it now in his quotes in the Sun-Times uh, Tribune, WTTW, wherever, wherever he goes on. And uh, I, I feel as though, um, I feel as though it's a little unfair to Jason Lee, and you can respond to this one. I really <laughs> how you're going to go here. I feel it's unfair because... That is effectively what, in many ways, is a reflection of Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson is, um, he's hes like an appeaser, in a sense. You know, he's a, a mediator. He's not the kind of guy to get you in your face as a human being. And so while he's standing up for what he believes, he's trying to do it in such a way that does not lose support. And I think we feel that Jason Lee reflects that as well. Uh, and so... But you can't take a good idea and make it a bad idea in order to sell it. So I think the idea is, look, like I ran in a, a, what you call a centrist Democrat, right-leaning Democrat area, and I am very far to the left. Um, but I wanted to talk to people about the material conditions under which they live and what a government is supposed to do. And, and you can have those conversations with people. And I do believe that even though a lot of people didn't vote for me, um, a decent amount of people did, but there's a respect and trust when someone is being honest with you. And it is so clear when Jason Lee is trying to take an idea and, and squeeze it into a shape or twist it into a pretzel, whatever you want to say, to <laughs> sell it, it makes nobody happy, yeah. right? So you cannot be saying that, you know, the, the mayor's sort of reputation is going to ride on whether bring Chicago home passes and be like palling it up with your fellow Nepo baby Bill Conway about doing doing sweeps. Yeah, I mean, no. you can't do that because there is something the American people don't like politics, but, um, you know, they can smell it. They can smell dishonesty. And I yeah. think that sometimes they would rather have somebody who's who's nuts or wrong or extreme, but who gives honest vibes. And I know we've talked about Trump, who who is not an honest person, but some people say like, oh, he tells it like he is like it is, um, which is really like a better reflection of them was like, oh, my God, is that what you're thinking? Um, then someone who they feel is trying to sell them a bill of goods or someone who is trying to sneak something past them or someone who's trying to play both sides. I, I do think you have to get into conflict to do yeah. these things, because at the end of the day, you know, you're going to take this vote or that vote. You're going to do this thing or that thing. Yeah. Um, and that's what you build political capital up to do. Uh, there was a great line in today's Sun Times. I got to give him credit. Shout out to uh, 
I know I know who wrote it. I don't know if I'm supposed to know who wrote it, but anyway, <laughs> Lee Bay. Uh, it was a great line. I wish I'd come up with it. He was talking about the official line put out by Mayor Johnson about uh, shot spotter and how they're uh, getting rid of it while keeping it <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> uh, and uh, he wrote, it's a great line. There's That's so much word salad. He's talking about a quote that was put out. Uh, but I can't remember if it was Jason Lee or Brandon Johnson or the press office. That's so much word salad. It should have been served with a pepper grinder and breadsticks. Pretty funny. Yes. Uh, this infuriates me because part of wanting somebody who was an organizer or an outsider or a coalition leader to come in is because there was this moral belief that that person would tell hard truths and that person would use that, you know, that that firm but gentle personality or cultivate the kind of authority and trust with people that would win them over person by person, group by group, issue by issue. And that's not what we're what we're seeing. Yeah. And that's and, really tough. And uh, the mayor is clearly not using his bully pulpit to do this, uh, to win over people to his cause. Or is he going to the Trump direction where it didn't care about winning people over, just throwing red meat to the base? Uh, all right, which brings I, mean, me- I don't think this is I don't think this is red meat to the base, right? Because again, it's it's so we talked about this a little bit before. It's the idea of like a moral victory. So when you look at the voters who put Brandon Johnson into office, the the pattern of of, of voters and wins, this has a lot to do with the de- the distribution of voters in the city, was not that dissimilar from the people who put Lightfoot into office. And, you know, even though they were very different people with very different promises, um, both cycles, people were voting on wanting something new, wanting a change, and to some degree, wanting someone who is a little bit of an outsider. Um, And I think what's really challenging for me in the circles that I run in is the idea that you can play to the base by putting out these like little moral victories. We did a thing, but business as usual keeps going. And I think there are a large group of people who want to see like massive structural and material changes in the city of Chicago. And then there are some people who want to say like, yeah, we won this one. Mm-hmm. And I think we're talking about the ceasefire resolution. It's really important to elevate important issues and to talk about them and to try to sway the broader party. But I also know a lot of people who said, we won this one. It's done and are walking off to the next issue. And, and you know, as things are getting worse in Palestine, there are folks who say, OK, like, like they're walking through these things with a checklist because for some folks, um, I think the material conditions that underpin these things can move them emotionally, but don't actually affect their lives. Mm-hmm. And so a moral win is like a cheap win to sell it to them. And you're seeing that on the right too, right? There's a lot of folks putting money into people like Trump who are not all that keyed into his ideology, but really love the idea that they're never going to pay taxes again because he's just sort of dismantling the economy in the country. And then there are some people who just love the idea that, you know, he says things that excite them. And I think that we need to reorient politics back towards what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Uh, we would like to see the receipts. I would like to see the receipts, like metaphorically and literally. Yeah. Uh, shout out Coach Prime. He's the first person I, th- I heard talking about. I want to see the receipts. Uh, all right. Let's go back to my uh, obsession with base. Uh, so I'm going to ask you this question. So I, I think I know what people mean when they say uh, Mayor Johnson is playing to his base. I already articulated my view on this. They think of it as lefty alien creatures that they either despise or disdain. 
and it really irritates them that uh, these alien creatures have any influence whatsoever uh, with uh, the mayor. Now, they never use that phrase base in reference to Rom or Daly. But who do you think were Rom and Daly's base? If you had to uh, write an article or a speech or a book on the base that uh, Rom and Daly were constantly appeasing, who would you put as that? Who would you identify as that base? So I would say that for Rom, the the phrase that he used a lot that that now everybody uses, especially in kind of the philanthropic world, um, is he was talking about making Chicago a world class city. And so I would say Rom's base are the world class city people, right? And and what what again, right? What that that kind of makes you remember is that across the political spectrum, there are sort of like rich and opportunistic and wide eyed dreamy people. Um, who will buy into a lot of this stuff, right? Like Ram is the, you know, whatever. People people have a really hard time pinning him down on the political spectrum, but he did some things that were pretty far out to the right, but because he was so embedded with the Democrats and the Democratic Party, and he was seen as, you know, the tough guy who did the hard things, you know, people, people saw him as sort of true blue. And um, politically, I just disagreed with so many things that he did. Yeah. Oh, all right, let's not go down. I could go down. I, I'm really resisting the temptation to go down the path of how overrated Ram is as a political. Uh, we, the last time we were on the show, we talked about. We that. did. No, we talked about how overrated he is. And yeah. so, so for Daily's base, again, right? Like yeah. there was a large municipal workforce. And so communities that were benefiting from public spending, right? So a mayor's base should be the people who are benefiting from public spending. And if public money is being spent really well, it's spent in your community. Sometimes it's in the, the way of public services. Sometimes it's in terms of jobs. Right. And there was a very racialized element to the way that public sector jobs or the way when public sector money found its way into the private sector, how those jobs ended up going places. Right. So like a lot of the trade unions and things like that that have still continued to lean a little bit right, even though they're staying in the in the democratic space in Chicago politics. So I think Daly's base where, you know, Pete spent money on people. Uh, yeah, well, I don't think he spent it fairly or or necessarily always well. But I think that there were enough of those people and the voter demographics and the numbers panned out that it's, you know, you know, it's a very fine line between patronage politics and actually being a good representative government. Yeah, I would say uh, Daly was doing Rom pretty much the same um, programs and strategies of Rom, but he just framed it differently. So I believe that uh, like Daly was obsessed with world class city, too. Let's for, not forget the Olympics. Oh, that's true. Yeah. You know? Oh my goodness. And Daly would like he, he would travel. Oh God, <laughs> he'd go to China or, or Paris and come back. I want what they have. And the next thing you know, everybody's moving. Remember the uh, the bullet train to uh, O'Hare? That dumb idea that Rom also ch- championed because he was palling around with Elon Musk. I would think. I was gonna say the hyperloop, right? Yeah, I think I uh, Elon Musk is Rom's base. Uh, <laughs> Well, right. like, but then again, right, the lineage of that is now the tech bros who run sound thinking, right? Those are the kinds of people who are coming to inherit public spending, and it's not coming back into our communities. And it's not your teachers getting paid and your sanitation workers getting paid. It's these guys, like these these crazy venture capitalists who are selling you like a shitty scheme 
Uh, and they're taking that money to, to go who knows where and do who knows what with it, but it ain't coming back to the tax base, local That's or federal. Well stated, Denali. But uh, you know whose money is coming back to the tax, ba- tax base, Ben? Immigrants? Immigrants. Uh, right. Perfect tangent. <laughs> this lady should have her own podcast. Uh, this is a riff. I've been waiting for everyone to hear from Denali. I got a bit of it yesterday. And uh, you speak to me, Denali. So the floor is yours. Take it away. Uh, the insanity of our attitude toward immigrants is really on display here when we think how beneficial immigrants are to the economy. Go ahead. Right. So you had put that column out earlier about saying, what if we thought about immigrants as the kind of opportunity that we do when a major sports stadium wants to be built? And when you called me and said, hey, do you want to you be on the show? I said, you know what, Ben? I said, the Congressional Budget Office came out with a report earlier this month that said Ben is right. <laughs> and so over the next, yeah, that's all it says. It's a big document produced by a bipartisan research group that said Ben is right. And people were like, Ben who? And I was like, I know. Um so <laughs> what, what the Congressional Budget Office said, and, and like again, bipartisan, independent, you know, nerds, um, said that over the next 10 years, about $7 trillion, trillion with a T, uh, dollars will be, in our gross domestic product, will be attributable to immigrants coming. And that will translate to about $1 trillion in, in government revenue. And a lot of this is because... Many of the immigrants who are coming are working age people who want to work, who want to have families here. Um, And, you know, I think, again, right when I was on over the summer, I talked about doing a lot of work with um, a local mutual aid group, CCC 33, um, that was working with folks who are living at police stations and now connected with people in shelters. And because we form these great relationships with people, we still talk and text with them a bunch of times. Uh, And I think I had mentioned, like, there are some folks who um, have left shelter and are living um, on the street. They're living in tents who are reaching out right now to get information about starting their own businesses. And I don't think it should have to be that hard, but like, let's go back again to this idea of, you know, Jason Lee and Bill Conway talking about sweeping encampments while people in those encampments are trying to start businesses. And both of those people, Conway and Lee, have very famous well-off parents who helped them get quite far to where they are. Now that is not a judgment on their talent or whatever, full disclosure, my dad is also a research scientist. But I think it is a really sharp contrast to see this idea of the people who are in our government sitting and thinking about what makes a productive city and who makes a productive city and thinking, boy, we got to go sweep those encampments when there are people out there hustling so hard. And the other thing that's really interesting about about what the the Congressional Budget Office said, and it's a couple of things, but one of them is that because so many of these immigrants are starting from such a, a tough financial situation. And because so much of our gross domestic product is measured in things like, like building housing and construction, there's like a time release demand for new housing because the government is betting. The bipartisan analysis of when large groups of immigrants have come before says that when these folks start to succeed, they start to succeed in ways that lift the economy, both through their consumption and through their production. Folks are going to be coming into the construction industry and building housing, which is what comprises a bunch of of activity that our government loves to measure as productivity. Side note, they do not mention being a mom as contributing to the gross domestic product. And that is a shitload of labor that helps keep this country running. But of the things they love, right, it's a lot of jobs that immigrants are going to be doing. And then in the future, consuming things that is, again, spending that lifts our economy. Ben was right. Ben was right. Thank you. Yeah. The proportions. When you said Ben is right, I go, oh, the Bears should keep Justin Fields. Is that what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and uh, all right. you need to talk to Mr. Weeze about that. That's not yeah. my thing. Uh, all right. So, um, uh, so if the uh, smartest people in the room have calculated and as in a dispassionate and anal as analytic ways you can, that it's actually a benefit to have new people from other countries move to our cities and use this as a launching pad to the American dream. Why is it that the citizens of Chicago are so freaking clueless in their attitude to new immigrants? Why the hatred of new immigrants? It's to the point where the counterpunch in the city council by Anthony Beal uh, and Raymond Lopez uh, on the immigrant issue was to put on the ballot a measure that would strip Chicago of its sanctuary city status. And Mayor Johnson and his advisors said, no, we have to block this because we will lose. I, of course, like, no, put it on a ballot. Engage this issue. Bring out Denali to say, you guys realize that this is going to help you. But no, 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 no. Let's not. And by the way, I have so many liberal friends who tell me, Ben, you do not want that on the ballot. It'll be a huge propaganda victory for Trump when Chicago votes overwhelmingly against sanctuary city. You do not want this. So why, Denali? Why? If the rational. People are afraid. I think people are afraid of things that are, are new to them. People are afraid of people who are different from them. And I think what's also really hard, I know a lot of left-leaning people who said, I can't stand seeing people standing um, on the corner selling candy with their children. And I said, so would you rather have them be invisible, right? People feel so bad about the terrible way that we have treated people who come here that they wish they would just go away. And, and when I was on your show last, we were talking about sort of this, this critical moment of how are we going to receive people? Are we going to try to contain them? Are we going to try to push them out of sight? Are we going to put them in shelters where we're not allowing the community to have access to folks and then we're going to try to mass evict them and we're going to do all of these things? Or are we going to say, hey, how do we make this city an easier place for them to get from point A to point B where they want to be and start engaging with our communities, get their kids in our schools, get them living in our neighborhoods, right? Uh, renting apartments, buying houses, starting businesses, doing all of the things that make our communities safe and strong and, and well-resourced. I think I mentioned to you, one of the folks that I'm still in touch with uh, moved halfway across the country to just go work at a meatpacking plant. Um, which, you know, to me was really hard because I said, you know, these are really dangerous jobs. Um, I'm really happy for you. And he was very quickly able to bring other family there and get himself up on his feet and started. And we in Chicago did not figure out a way to do that. Now, I've heard a lot of good ideas kind of swirling around, but I think, again, folks are so overwhelmed by the idea that folks are coming and we want to have rules and we want to have systems and we want people to do this, 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 and that. And we got to fit it into like a Microsoft PowerPoint, smart art, really good infographic. Um, DFSS is very heavy on those. And I just think that we have to look to history, recent history, longer history. And, and you pointed out extremely recent history where we've had a large wave of migration of Ukrainians uh, who have very successfully resettled in the city of Chicago. Yeah. It's um staggering how well they've uh integrated themselves in chicago uh and i i listen every time i bring up the ukrainian experience the initial reaction is well people are racist i'm like 
I where is where's the yelling loudest in Chicago? It's all over the city. It's not one neighborhood. You got because Ukrainians came, people. so there were a couple of things. One is that they came under a different federal, okay. you know, status, and mm-hmm. access to things was different. I don't understand this quite as well, but folks have told me it's similar to how people from Afghanistan came. Um, that there was a Ukrainian community to receive them, and so in a way, there was like they connected with their people. And there are not a lot of Venezuelans in Chicago. And I think for a lot of people, even Latinos in Chicago, they're saying, these are not our people. That's correct. And we've built our walls up so high as individuals. We all went into our houses during COVID and came out nuts, right? We engage, we, we never, people never talk face-to-face about politics like you and I are doing right now, right? You'll do it, you'll read about it, you'll have someone shout at you on TV or you'll engage over social media. Um, and so we just divide ourselves into smaller and smaller and more and more antagonistic groups. So, all right, here's a uh, philosophical question of sorts. Uh, if you, and I'm, I'm tending to agree with you, uh, break it down to fear as to why uh, Chicago, we're concentrating on Chicago's reaction. I realize other cities have a similar reaction, but let's just concentrate on Chicago. Why Chicagoans have an illogical reaction to immigration. It's completely counterintuitive. It's illogical. It's hurting Chicago to have the attitude that it has. It's hurting you, Chicago. So if you say fear is the reason, then to deal with fear politically, do you what? Uh, Appease it by saying, build walls, kick them out, don't let buses come in, uh, kick them out of uh, the shelters, or do you try to change their minds uh, and try to get them to realize that they're being illogical? Your thoughts? I think that if you ever walk into an argument saying, I'd like to tell you how you're illogical, you're already starting from a little bit of a disrespectful space. But, you know, fear is a real thing, right? Fear and safety are both things we feel and we perceive, and they're all based on our experiences. So we have to understand where people are coming from. And yeah, I mean, some people say, like, you shouldn't give people the time of day. But I said, like, it's worth understanding what people are responding to. And I would put back on you, right? We had a massive wave of immigration from Mexico in the 1990s in Chicago. Uh, And then a lot of those folks had kids. And that is kind of how a lot of our Latino communities grew um, and expanded. Because remember, maybe like 25 years ago, there were not as many Latino, uh, predominantly or plurality Latino areas of the city as there are now. Like a lot of the Northwest side, you know, became Latino through those years, right? And as a, you know, a lot of it came from this massive wave of immigration from Mexico. I don't know how much of it was talked about here. I know there was a lot of national discourse about it, but I don't think people realized how many people came. I think it's because we talk about it. There's a spotlight on it. We want to push people through these really narrow um, city channels because of the enormous amount of money the city is spending. I think also because the enormous amount of money that the city is spending that nobody's getting anything from. That's really hard. That's hard for people in the right, the left, and the center. Yeah. Where so much of this $1.5 million that's supposedly being spent every day is just paying staff to be prison guards for folks who want to get out there and work. Now, we could have taken that volume of money, um, right? If you think about it, right? Bring Chicago home. We're trying to get, you know, something between 110 and $160 million a year in dedicated revenue for affordable housing. We could be as a city taking some of this money, especially the ARPA money that was put into the migration um, issue 
and trying to rehab housing, trying to create congregate housing, trying to buy things, trying to make things better. Um, and the fact that, again, right, this is part of the privatization thing, the assets thing, let's not sell off our assets. Let's use the money and the resources we have to invest them in people or invest them in things, like durable good things or programs, which are durable good services that the public sector maintains so that the people of the city of, of Chicago, present and future, now have better stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you. Uh, but the funniest thing you said was you don't go to an argument telling people they're illogical or you're an idiot. That doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's sort of my impulse. Uh, you just stay curious, right? I mean, <laughs> no, okay. So I'll tell you a side story. Was, I knocked on the door of this, this older woman and she was a, a police widow. Uh -huh. We were talking about public safety. And she said, you know, when when back in the day, uh, police officers would just knock on my door and say, like, ma'am, how's it going? And I did not say this to her face. But the first thing I thought was, oh, my God, either your husband thinks you're sleeping with someone while he's at work or he's sleeping with someone when he's at work. <laughs> right. But to this woman, this was this. Idea. I was like, I was like, or you just want a private security force. I'm not sure what's happening. Right. Like maybe I'm not a good politician because this is my face. And I'm glad people on the show can't see my face. But people said a lot of things to me because I stayed curious. And I think you got to just let people say the thing sometimes it's it's really interesting to know you have no idea what's going on inside other people's heads yeah, I, I you're absolutely correct not uh, like you personally you probably know what's going on inside of a lot of people's heads but like the vast majority of us right like we think we know what's going on yeah. and i think this leads us to our other conversation that we wanted to talk about which was sort of like uh the tom swazi thing yeah let's talk about that uh, right so we are telling this story publicly why don't you tell me the way that you understand this big democratic national victory and its implications and then i will tell you a little a little uh, insider gossipy new yorker story well i would love to hear your version first but I, I'll, I'll i'll summarize it uh although um i just want to say one thing before i do just before i leave the last point i have so much experience dealing with illogical and irrational uh, discourse because I spend so much of my time talking to Chicagoans about sports. And yeah. you to talk to a Chicagoan about sports is to take a trip into illogic. And, and it's that's, good practice. It's very good practice. Okay. And they say so many bizarre things and they read the sports, the poor sports columnists have to weigh in like three or four times a week. They're just, I think they're losing their minds trying to say something different. Uh, so there's just so much logic out there. And uh, so, yeah, that's my recommendation to everybody out there is for good training. Have a conversation with a Chicagoan about sports. <laughs> All right. Uh, New York City. Wow. Um, I'm going to uh, try to be as brief as I can because I really want to hear your thoughts. I mean, we talked about this yesterday. Uh, so uh, George Santos, I have mixed feelings about this, uh, Denali. I don't think I've ever expressed this on the mic. Um, George Santos uh, was elected in 2022 uh, in uh, the midterms as a congressman from a, uh, a district that's sort of suburban New York City, uh, goes into New York a little bit. Uh, and um, I have mixed feelings about him. He's He is such a lot. <laughs> you have mixed feelings about him. Yes. And on the other hand, his I, I found something just so um entertaining about his reign brief as it is it was so bizarre <laughs> it was best situated when he he lies about everything he lied about being jewish 
Uh, and he said he relatives died in the Holocaust. And it turns out he's not Jewish. And his response was, I didn't say I was Jewish. I was Jewish, like the TV show Blackish. And I'm like, this dude is he's a piece of work. Trip. No, my husband for Christmas got me a book all about George Santos. And I mentioned that to you. You said, there's a book. And I said, this guy's been lying for a really long time. And he got past it. it, it you talk about like, I mean, the, the, the Santos story is a really interesting one. And there are parallels to, to Swazi. We can bring this all back together. But so San, right, Santos, so the, Santos rides out in a blaze of, of infamy. Yeah. So he's gone. Uh, and uh, in to replace him, the Republicans, this one is so wild. Uh, uh, recruited a woman who was born in Ethiopia. Follow me in this, ladies and gentlemen. I talked about this yesterday. She was born in Ethiopia. She has dark skin. You would see her and you think, oh, that's a black woman. Uh, she migrated to uh, Israel. She's Jewish. Uh, and um, then she migrated from Israel to the United States. And I received her campaign fundraising uh, emails. And they would say things like, I'm going to lead the charge against immigration. And I'm like, you have been, quote unquote, saved twice by immigration. You know, you left Ethiopia, you left Israel. And now what this that's just like, wow, insane. Uh, And she also embraced anti-abortion. And uh, Swazi, who uh, is a very mainstream Democrat, to put it mildly, uh, ran uh, that he would be tougher on immigration uh, than she would be. Uh, because I, I, he could get things to who knows somehow or other he's going to be tougher in immigration and at the same time absolutely believed in a woman's right to choose and i think th- those two issues uh, are what democrats are taking away from that election which is yes. bash immigrants while telling women assuring women that you will support the right to have an abortion that is the key that's the takeaway that the democratic party uh, has taken from uh, Swazi's victory. So that's my thoughts on it. The floor is yours. So there is this national story saying there is a, a sea change of foot in politics. Tom Swazi won this. He took this seat in a special election from a Trump-aligned Republican by playing this, this tactic and this set of issues for the Democratic Party. Tom Swazi is not, uh, you know, some fresh-faced young lad. So Tom Swazi first came into, into my knowledge in 2006, 2006, something like that, when he ran against Spitzer for governor, right? Tom Swazi has been around. Tom Swazi is also, okay, so full disclosure, uh, my husband is from Nassau County, which means a couple of different things, one of which is that I know the, the extensive backstories of all of these elected officials. Uh, it also means that every time we get stuck in traffic and we go to visit his family, we hear all of these like riffs on different things Robert Moses did. And he also keeps trying to drive us by the Joey Buttafuoco Botel. <laughs> we can save that for another time. But- uh- yeah. Swazi was a, a mayor and then he was county executive in Nassau County. He is also a Nepo baby. Uh, it's so great we have a term for that now. But he used to hold that seat, Ben. Yes, yes he, he did. He used to hold that seat. He chose not to run. He beat Santos handily the first time that Santos won. Uh, right. And that ran, yeah. And then he came back and took it in a special election. This is not because of strategy or this brilliant alchemy of national issues that are going to allow Democrats to hold the country. This is a guy coming back for his seat after it, you know, it went on this like little Looney Tunes ride. And actually it's really interesting because the way that Santos took that seat, right? When he found out Swazi wasn't going to run, he got, he got trounced. He went and he jumped in with, with Trump. 
And he just made himself larger and larger than life and nuttier and nuttier than ever. And he rose to prominence as part of Stop the Steal. And so I think that um, you're going to love this, right? Because I like to come with catchphrases for you. But both Swazi and Santos are, are a lot more alike than you think because they're doing this thing that I like to call grifting at the margins of your party where people are like Santos lost, right? In a place where Republicans have, have looked and acted a little bit differently, even though you know Trump did, did quite well in Nassau County. Um, but he came out with this, this, this whole big persona. I love Trump, he was whatever. And in many ways he was echoing Trump's own rise in Queens in New York City. And then Swazi is doing this thing where he's saying, like, I'm a Democrat, I'm taking territory back for the Democrats and holding the line for the Democrats. And here's how I'm doing it by taking in Republican talking points. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, I mean, this win is emboldening other Democrats to now say, yeah, you know what? Here's how we want to be on the border. Like I saw a quote from Chris Murphy and people are like, yeah, yeah. You know, there's something to what this guy has to say. And I think if you don't know the history of him in this seat, and him is a pretty established politician who made a lot of money. I mean, his run against Spitzer for governor, where he got trounced, was funded by all the Wall Street people that Spitzer prosecuted. And that's how he even got to run for governor the first time. Wow. And so this is not, um, you know, this is not the, the story that we're hearing in the opinion pages is, is not the story of how this guy won this election. It's a tremendous name ID out there. He was a yeah. county executive. He's got tons of political connections. No, I, I, yeah, it's, there's the local angle and then there's the national uh, amplification of what went down. And, and it, the local angle is uh, it generally overlooked. And uh, by the way, when you uh, went on that riff and you brought back Elliot Spitzer, I haven't thought of Elliot Spitzer in years. I started <laughs> thinking, I'm realizing in its own way, New York, follow me on what I'm about to say, oh, yeah, is as good. demented in politics as Chicago or Illinois. And I, I feel so at home here. It's, yeah, because Spitzer, did, oh my God, the Elliot Spitzer story, how he torpedoed his career. Uh, we should with, talk about this with more time. So I would yeah. say that New York has to learn to pick better lieutenant governors because <laughs> now we know that we need some backup. But um, <laughs> the, the, the very abbreviated story of this is that I have a mentor who I absolutely adore. And she ended up taking over David Patterson's course at Columbia, yeah. teaching it as an adjunct when David Patterson went to go be governor after Elliot Spitzer left. And she came back to our office and she said, you know, they're paying me less to take this class over for Patterson than they paid that then Spitzer paid that that prostitute. And I said, wow. I said, what a way to bring it on full circle. Yeah. I mean, um, just think about it. Uh, and we could do a whole show on this. Uh, Spitzer, uh, a, well, David Patterson is, is like a blip because he was the one who replaced Spitzer. But yeah, because the, people don't pick good lieutenant governors. Yeah. Spitzer, Cuomo. Cuomo, right? I was about to say. And don't forget, old boy, uh, whose name I just forgot, but I could see his face, the one who sent the the naked pictures of himself. Uh, the, the oh, uh, I have a story about Anthony Weiner. Weiner. How can I forget Weiner? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Tell oh, story. no, it's it's just it's just a personal encounter with Anthony Weiner. He's a big creep. Um, but, you know, again, but that Anthony Weiner, there was a point in time where he got up and I think he spoke about health care in 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 Congress or something like that. Or maybe it was in city. It was a city council. So right before he ran for mayor and he went viral. Everyone loved it. Like, who is this young, passionate man? And that's the thing. We don't pay attention. Right. We look for these moments where someone has captured some enthusiasm and excitement. And I don't want the Johnson administration to be that. I don't want that to be a moment where people's excitement was captured by this by this story. And now we all have to hold to the story. I don't want a moral victory. I want I want a real victory. 
Yeah, and uh, I presume that real victories uh, will help uh, Mayor Johnson get other real victories uh, and uh, stay win re-election because the force has been lined up against him since the day he was sworn in. Let's be honest. Uh, uh, the editorial forces, the Republican Party, the inroads they made with Paul Vallis, they're not going anywhere. You've already mentioned- They Bill still Clinton. let that man write in the newspaper. You know, they, they, in some ways, he's more- He writes for the Tribune. In some ways, you go back to logic and rational, he's more rational and logical than the new, the Tribune's editorial, regular editorial writers who are- how in the world? Oh, here I go. Here there I go. Goes. How in the world could a newspaper that was decimated by the forces of capitalism be by trunk flag of capitalism so hard? It's like wow, so twisted their logic. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I went nuts about his Bring Chicago Home editorial and, you know, all of the things that he was saying about what it was going to do and these fiscal projections and all of these things when the largest thing that is happening, which, by the way, is still something that's on Mayor Johnson's plate, is that we have a commercial real estate crisis in the city of Chicago. That doesn't mean that I don't think we need a transfer tax and that doesn't mean I don't think we need to also fund homelessness. But we need to talk about commercial real estate in the city of Chicago. And that is a separate conversation from this like apocalypse story that Paul Vallis wants to tell. Uh, or even like when Willie Wilson sent a postcard to my house with just a police car on fire on it. <laughs> like, right, people are trying to get you to do things or to feel things uh, in these really disingenuous ways. Yeah, no, the the base that he, okay, we're going back to, we're close with the base because base has been uh, a, a sort of a theme throughout. The base, obviously, the, the tr Tribune editorial and Paul Vallis and Willie Wilson, he, he writes for the, or his, his byline appears in the, in the, I have no idea who writes any of these things. Uh, there's probably one poorly paid intern who writes Vallis's column and Willie Wilson's. Uh, but the base. I think Vallis's column is so wrong and confident that it has to be written. <laughs> I don't know. You know, a great ghostwriter could just capture the essence of a, uh, it's a talent. Okay. I used to think I was pretty good at it. Uh, you know, you could, this, this person is a freaking lunatic, but, that's who he is. So you're going to get what you want. Um, but uh, obviously the base is uh, the real estate industry. So you want a base? Here you go. Uh, oh, yeah. You, know? you want to look at who's been lobbying at council. You know, you can go into the Chicago data portal and you can see who's lobbying and who the lobbyists are and who they're paying for and, and what they're they're yeah. going to talk about. Um, and and I think, you know, what what they're identified as the base. They're never I mean, identified as a Again, the base is viewed as a special interest. It, uh, with Johnson, an alien crew of people who are trying to take over our city. The other side never has a base. It's just like, well, prudent people uh, concerned about the public good. That's that's. The, but they have a base. The base is the real estate industry, which they're trying to prop up. And you're absolutely correct about commercial industry. They don't know what to do. Denali, do you realize it was only, uh, let me do the math, about seven years ago, where the city was competing with every other city to throw money at Amazon to put a corporate quarters. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, we look pretty stupid, don't we? Uh, illogical. Well, so here's my question to you, Ben. Yeah. How do we not fight their ideological battles? So we were talking about this before, where I said that the greatest trick that ever got played on us was letting a certain group of people walk away with the phrase pro-life. So with this conversation with the base, every time we repeat it, we have an us versus them, a small, powerful, special interest minority who maybe were, like me, a lot of the people who are out there knocking on doors, a lot of the people who wanted to put legislation and issues on that. But a lot of people voted for Brandon Johnson because it takes a lot of people to make a mayor, to vote for a mayor. So 
if we don't want to fight the same ideological battle and we want to read some different editorials in the newspapers, what do we what do we want to say about things? What do we want to say about these these campaign promises when they when they come up? Oh, that is, I, I mean, I I'm just pretty much sticking to who I am and how. I get, you know, what I've always done. And so, like, I'm still mad at him. Oh, I know some lefties who are listening to this show are going to get mad about this. I'm still mad at him because they haven't made good on the promise to reopen the mental health clinics. That was, yeah. what a, like I said, cruel and stupid idea that Mayor Rahm shoved through the city council 50 to nothing in order to make him look like a tough guy to win over East Coast editorial writers. Absolutely crazy. And here we are, how many years later? That was 2011. We still haven't reopened them, reopened them, Denali. Uh, and they, like you get health, you get doctors who know better that say things like, well, you know, actually, uh, it less can be more uh, if you think no. about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, like my heart is broken, right? The first time that I appeared publicly with, with Brandon Johnson, I said, you know, the reason that and this was, you know, that that arc of that he was at two percent, whatever. I said, you know, I. Mayor Lori Lightfoot hates children, and I don't want a mayor in Chicago who hates children. And, and Brandon Johnson has this list of promises. He has this track record. He has this reputation. Um, and I want a mayor that really cares about families and children. And those campaign promises were tangible ways that we would see demonstration of that. And, you know, with a lot of the stuff that's happened with the migrants, with the shelters, I have not seen that love for yeah. people. And I'm worried. I think you have to hold them to uh, accountable, uh, and you can't be afraid to do it. Uh, and you got to have some Jeanette Taylor in you and, and <laughs> you do and no. you get mad at I think you. You also have to talk about this stuff as common sense, which I think neither side likes, right? They want an ideological battle. Everyone is spoiling for a fight where they can win a quick moral victory or score a couple of points. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to talk about, you know, the burning police car, if we don't have shot spotter, or, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, and I want to hear more people. Maybe it's because it's the way that I talk. Say, like, let's talk about what we would rather do with $9 million. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, does it work? Let's talk about these things because you can have these conversations. Like, I mean, you and I are totally keyed up right now, but you can have these conversations in a very common sense way. And I think if what, what I would love to see my fellow far lefties do is, is stop fighting, start talking and listening. But I, I, I mean, I'm not saying that to say, you know, don't be outraged, but make the case that's not, you know, this is the right thing to do or we need to destroy the rich or whatever. I mean, well, actually make the case. This is the right thing to do. Beginning and end. It's not you're good, you're bad, you're on this side. You're This is the right thing to do. And when we do it, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And this is what's happened in the past and it's made a lot of things suck. So let's fix it. Yeah. And uh, listening is hard to do for a lot of people. Uh, not just the left, but on the left it's a special problem that my friends on the left have okay because part of the thing about the left everyone's smart you know what i mean you know what i'm saying <laughs> so smart i read this book <laughs> and i think it's wanting to that the maturity of this movement has to be the willingness to become mainstream chicago and that doesn't mean so there's there's the jason lee way of doing it, of saying like aha we'll become mainstream chicago by appeasing mainstream chicago it's to say hey we've heard what people want and they want schools and they want a you know fiscally sound city and they want to feel safe and they want to feel good uh and they want to go back to fighting about sports and pizza that's what they want we can make it happen yeah uh and uh now that i think about it that's kind of where daily was in the 90s uh, I don't know if you lived here then, but um, I did not. 
okay, he when he took over to schools, uh, what he one of the first things he did, he started spending the money that should have been going to pensions uh, on rebuilding and refurbishing schools uh, and winning over the union with um, raises. Uh, while telling the union, uh, with the union was complicit in this, telling teachers, shut up, just take the money. Uh, and um, that worked. Well, I, I would argue it never worked, but uh, the result was that we have a, this quote unquote uh, underfunded pension system. I was going to call it pension crisis, but the migrant crisis is given bad. It's just like, I we can have a lot of crises. We have a CTA crisis too. We can call them all crises and we can lose our minds. It's fine. Yeah, we lose our minds. But when you misuse the word over, you call migrant an opportunity, a crisis, then I think it's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, but I think that's what Daly was up to, if I give him the benefit of the doubt. I had my issues with Daly from the get go, uh, Denali, mainly because he wasn't Harold Washington. That's probably. <laughs> well, just think about how everyone in New York felt with, with, our, with our man, Rudy. Uh, well, God, oh my God. An inglorious arc. Sorry, I have to say his name, just his name. I won't okay. say it three times. He's got this whole candy man vibe, but I will at least mention it every time I'm on your, I'm on your show. That's what And I'm every time you say that, I tell you what, I, it's, I come back. That guy was, New Yorkers gave him, they exalted, it's like they put him on a pinnacle that he did not deserve. And I. He became America's mayor too. That was not just our fault. I mean, like I said, we 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 sowed the seeds with uh, Giuliani and Trump and Paris Hilton, but but Greater America embraced them and allowed them to grow into true. their like full fledged, full monstrous. And world. let me just close by saying what you just did is so Chicago. So when I point out, as I do, something that Chicagoans do that's absolutely insane, like lining up against migrants who are coming to the city looking to work that could bolster the economy uh and add people to our schools and build our tax base and they go out and go go home build a wall i say i point out how illogical they are uh and uh, hateful they are and they go but it's like that everywhere uh and so if i point out to you some of the the wackier more uh destructive politicians have come out of new york your response was, hey, America liked them, Ben. It's not just New York. So it's very Chicago. Everybody. <laughs> you need uh, to make a friend from Florida. <laughs> I was in Florida tonight. I think I may have told you this once in my life. I, I couldn't wait to get out. I will never go back to Florida. Uh, I, I pretty much think that's one promise I will keep. I will never go back to Florida. Um, I love a promise that people can keep. Yeah, I don't even cancel shot spotter. <laughs> cancel shot. Uh, we'll leave it there. God, I almost said it there. Uh, we will leave by saying cancel shot spotter and don't apologize, Mayor Johnson. No, you know what I mean. The thing doesn't. Here's the other thing. Like the, what's what it consist what what exists of the good government community in you know Chicago. Those are the people who generally don't take a stand on inequity, but talk about budgets. That's in Chicago. That's essentially how you break down. I'm the good government person now. Well, I'm the captain all, now, Ben. Okay, but you're not the good. I'm going to Captain Phillips. Good government in the next couple of years. I'm going to walk into those rooms. Those guys are old and frail, and I'm going to say I am the captain now. We're going to talk about what good government means. Tom Hanks movie. That's where I was like, is that what she's going <laughs> to? That's a Tom Hanks movie. Uh, but uh, anyway, even the good government people are against it. So, yeah, if the good government people are against it, uh, Brandon, you should have cover. All right, Denali, anything you want to say uh, in closing uh, before we uh, uh, end the show? Anything, any final thoughts that you have? Anything you want to promote? Go ahead. 
you know, uh, thank you so much for, for having me on. I love hanging out with you. I love uh, talking to you and about Chicago. And uh, yeah, that's it. All right, that's it. I heard. I know. I'm sorry. I didn't have. I didn't have anything. I didn't have anything big. Uh, you could do better than that. I don't want to recite. I could do better. Than that. I told you, I'm doing this show stone cold sober for the first time. So you got to cut me a break. All right, I'll catch you some uh, a break. I am meanwhile on so many meds right now. I've to, to, I got a swollen knee. I'm not crying about it, but I am. So Lord knows, I'm seeing butter. Oh, I'll tell you what I'll close on. The fact that I the reason I canceled before and now I'm on today is because I discovered that after engaging in Chicago politics, uh, I stopped just short of. Having an ulcer, but the inside of my esophagus is so inflamed from my constant inner riffing and ranting uh, that I really can't eat food right now, and I, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, loosen up with a beer on your show. Um, so that is what politics does to you, kids. Well, uh, what I think, bodies. I think the remedy for that is to have you come on more frequently, so that uh, you're not unleashing all at once, holding it all in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we get you on the show. Uh, and uh, I think that's the solution to this one. But I'll tell you what, this is not an easy person to book, ladies and gentlemen. Let me just tell you that, okay? She's a busy lady. Uh, and um, so anyway, thank you very much, Denali. I uh, love having you on the show. Bring you back. Thank you, Ben. Feel better. I Yes, I do. I'm going to go back on the couch with uh, the uh, ice pack. All right. I also want to thank producer Chris. He does an outstanding job. Uh, and Denali, will, as Denali would tell you, hey, producer Chris, give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can catch previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, read columns from Ben Jarofsky, catch other great reader podcasts like the sit down with Shawnee Dez coming like twice a month. It's great. Uh, You also want to make sure you head to that Chicago Reader store, pick up your Chicago Reader merch, show your neighbors and your friends how cool you are, how much you love independent journalism in Chicago. And make sure to follow Ben on Instagram at Benny J Show. And don't forget, please like, subscribe, and follow The Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.